0: Well, uh, as as you know, you know, we're in the the midst of this sermon series, Origins. Um, And for those of you guys who have been here, we're going through and we're looking uh, at what, you know, who we are as a church. We're taking each of our core values um, and each week someone teaches on it. And it really goes into depth about, you know, what the Bible has to say about that and why it is that this is something that we say as a church that we value and so this sermon series is kind of exciting for me because I think one, it gives us an opportunity to kind of remember and be reminded of who it is that we say we are, right, and what it is that we say is important to us. But then it also gives us an opportunity to kind of, you know, check and say, well, you know, are we, <laughs> you know, how are we doing on some of these things? Um, it's also exciting for me because I was a part of the the original group that Pastor Peter got together. Uh, about five and a half years ago, college students and some young adults. And we kind of came up with these core values and, and prayed through and asked the question, You know, what would it look like to be a New, Test, a New Testament church today? Like what, what would that be like? How would that be? And we, most of us didn't have a whole lot in common outside of Pastor Peter and some sort of connection to him loosely sometimes. Um, but the thing that we did all believe was that it was possible right? We all believe that somehow it was possible to have a church where you have people from all walks of life, people from all racial, cultural, social groups, socioeconomic statuses, from all of these different places um, in their journeys, and their walks. We could have a church where all those folk could come together serving God with one mission to truly seek the heart of God and to witness God to a hurting and dying world. We, we really, really believe that that thing could happen. And so we got together and we started praying and we started, you know, really starting to try to grapple with, well, what what would this look like? And our model, as we've kind of been going through this week, was Acts chapter 2. And what would an Acts 2 church look like in the 21st century? And so we would pray together and we would worship together and we would pray some more and we studied the word together and really started to grapple with that passage. And so we asked ourselves, well, what what were the characteristics of this church? What, What were these people like? And Acts chapter 2 tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching um, and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people and the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. So like I said, we've been we've been looking at this for the past 2 weeks and so what are the characteristics? What can we pull from this passage about what this church was? Well, we know that they met regularly, right? They met together in small groups and large groups. These were people who devoted themselves to teaching and to growing in the truth of God. So this was a, you know, these weren't just folk who were okay with sort of just coming by and doing whatever they were doing. They were trying to learn. They were trying to grow. It was a community that supported one another. It was a community of people who not only loved one another, but they actually liked each other. They liked to be around one another. They fellowshiped regularly. This was a community that was a praying community. They believed in the power of prayer, and they met together in small groups and in large groups. They were praying all the time, whenever they could. And it was a church that practiced radical stewardship, economic sharing. Everyone in the community, at least, their financial and their their practical needs were met. And that tells you two things. One, they were comfortable enough to, let, to share their needs, right? So this was a community that knew each other, where people were, how they were hurting, and then was willing to be there for one another radically. Okay, so then if this is our model, right, if this is the church that we're trying to be, then what, what, what do we see about that? Well, first of all, it means that the church today, every church should and can be a church that has theological depth, that has intimate relationships with one another, joyous worship, relentless and effective evangelism. Because remember what the word said, every day God was adding to their numbers. People were attracted to these folk. People wanted to be a part of that. And when they got saved, it wasn't just like, oh, hallelujah, I know Jesus, and now I'll go my own way. They wanted to be a part of the community, and the community welcomed them in. So they had effective and relentless evangelism and sacrificial service. And again, if this is our model, then what does it tell us? Well, the church, being all of these things, has the potential to be a powerful, powerful, radical agent of change in this world. It has the potential to witness Jesus in a way that nothing else can. So... This is the kind of church, that is the kind of church the new community is striving to be. This is the kind of church that we say we are and that we are becoming daily. It's our mission, and we went over it before offering. We seek to be a city within a city, an alternate Chicago that passionately loves Jesus Christ, that intentionally, intentionally engages in authentic community and radically advances the cause of Jesus. See, in that mission statement, we tried to capture all that that Acts 2 church was. This is what we are. This is what we are becoming. So, okay, so if the mission statement is what we are— then the core values are going to tell, gonna tell you, you know, why we are, or better, why we do the things that we do the way that we do them. And we all have them. These core values are things that sort of orient us in the world, right? They, kind of, they shape and, and help us determine the choices that we're going to make. What are you going to pick? Which way are you going to go? Those things that you value at the core of who you are, they shape those things. Now, I'm not ever, ever, for as long as I live, going to forget the process um, of coming up with those core values. Um, There were a group of us, and and Pastor Peter, before we got together and met, he had encouraged us all to pray, you know, and there were some people fasting, and, you know, we were—this was a big deal, right? I was so excited because we are about to sit down. We had been meeting and praying for a while about this church, but this meeting, we were going to come together and actually put on paper what new community was going to be. So at the end of the meeting— All things said and done, I mean, we might not have people, but we were going to have a church, right? We had a plan, a format. And it was so exciting. And I remember the night before the meeting, you know, we were going to go up to this retreat center. And I had, like, all these kind of mixed feelings. On one hand, I'm really, really excited. This is really exciting. Cool. Wow. And then I was a little bit nervous because, like I said, the group of folks that that were assembled, what we had in (laughs) common— Well, that we knew Pastor Peter. Like, we weren't folk who would have probably hung out, uh, not all of us, you know, outside of this one thing. And so I knew that we were all committed to this vision. I knew we all believed in it, you know, the big picture. But I was not so sure, you know, that we were going to be able to agree on those, the details. You know, how, what we say we value, because we was kind of a loose construct at that time. So we get together, and we're sitting in this room, and I have to tell you, I think, you know, along the journey, God sometimes does these things. He gives you um, sort of gifts, right? So these moments that you can look back, and when everything, you know, hits the fan and it's crazy, you can remember that thing. You can say, okay, no, no, I do remember God called us to do this. Well, that meeting for me was one of those times. I don't care how crazy, you know, things get here along the way, how crazy things have ever gotten here along the way. Whenever, if ever, I ever had a moment where I'm like, God, yeah. hmm? <laughs> you sure? I can think back on that day, and I can remember, no, this was a God thing. Because you had this group of folk with a couple, you know, random things in common, and yet it was amazing how sitting down there wasn't a whole lot of big... We didn't go back and forth like, oh, no, I can... Diversity, no! You know, it was, it was amazing how much consensus there were. I think we all walked away knowing that God had moved. We all walked away kind of from the process like, wow, that was way easier than, um, than we kind of thought it would be. It was way easier than it should have been without God, without the Holy Spirit. So... So today, I am going to be talking to you about the core value of life change. Um, And of the eight core values that we have, I think that life change is sort of the one that needs the most explaining. Not because we don't understand life change. I I think we very, very clearly understand life change, particularly this church. I mean, the five years that we've been a church, we've had folk who have gone from being college students to being like parents of two children. Like we, we, there's been life change, right? People have gone from single to married. Folk have moved, folk have done. We understand what life change is. So it doesn't need explaining because it's unclear. But of the, the eight that we have, I think it's a little bit odd for anyone, and especially, you know, a church, to explicitly state that you value life change. I mean, the others make a little bit more sense, right? It makes sense for a church to explicitly state that they value social justice and diversity. Now, granted, not many churches do explicitly state that they value social justice and diversity, but it makes sense that a church would say that, right? It makes sense that a church would say that they value prayer, that they value praise and worship, that they value lost souls. But what does it even really mean to say you value life change? I mean, we said that core values orient us in the world, and they shape the way we make decisions. So how does valuing life change orient us? Life changes whether we want it to or not, right? It changes whether we say we value it or not. So what does it mean, then, to say that we as a church value life change? Well, the, the title of my sermon this morning is Life Change, a Journey, Not a Destination, and really at the end of this message if all you remember is the title um i'll be a little bit concerned right i might recommend that you seek medical attention um but i won't feel like i wasted my time (laughs) because i think that if we can get this one principle life change a journey not a destination if we can kind of wrap our minds around that it will radically change the way that we approach life it'll radically change the way we approach our relationship with god So what do I mean then? I think that most of us spend our lives, the majority of our lives, waiting for the next thing. We're waiting for a job. We're waiting for a spouse. We're waiting for children. We're waiting to be delivered from some sin that we're struggling with. We're waiting to be more spiritually mature. We're waiting, always waiting for that next thing. And it really shapes everything that we do. Probably 90% of our prayer life is spent asking God for that next thing. God, uh, you know, will you send a spouse? God, will you deliver me? God, what? We're always asking, trying to get to that next thing. We should be more spiritually mature. We should pray more. We should know more scripture. We should be married by now. We should have the job that, you know, our college degree said we were going to get. We should, we should be somewhere other than wherever it is in this moment at this time. And then there's the other kind of waiting. Whenever we're in the midst of very painful changes, the loss of loved ones or relationships, and we find ourselves just waiting to get through it, right? Waiting to feel like ourselves again, waiting to not be so sad, waiting to be somewhere other than where we are right now, in this place, in this time. Well, one of the biggest lessons that I have learned and am learning and will probably be learning until the day that I die (laughs) is that in this Christian life, the process, Right? The journey is just as important, if not more important, than the end result. It's in the journey. It's in that in-between time when you're uncomfortable, when you're trying to figure out, you know, what you think you should be and what you think you should be doing. It's in those spaces that we see God, that we learn God, that we come to know God more fully and that we're transformed. Anybody who uh, has been in church for a while could probably tell you the story of Abraham. This is sort of getting into where we're going. I love the Old Testament because you get these characters, right, and you get to see their life unfold before you. It's stories. It's not just like, you know, kind of this is what you should do or this is what happened. You get to see real people. And so this morning, as I'm thinking about, you know, how will I preach this? What, how do I say this? I thought, well, what better way to do it than to go to the Old Testament and, and, and actually see a journey and just sort of walk through a journey? So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Abraham. And, uh, and his part, a part of his journey. And I think that, uh, you know, he again, he's a familiar character. He's someone who, you know, if you've been in the church for any time, you, you know who he is. He's kind of the father of the faith, one of the patriarchs. He, we got Abraham. And if someone, if a non-Christian were to ask you to tell them the story of Abraham and Sarah, you might say something like, well, you know, there was uh, this couple, Abram and Sarai. that was their original names. And God called Abram one day and said, you know, go to a land that I will show you. And he took his whole family and then they went and God promised him a whole bunch of stuff. He was going to have, you know, a lot of kids and he was going to have land. And so Abram was excited. And then God changed his name. Then, you know, they became Abraham and Sarah because he was going to make them the father of many nations. And after some time passed, they had Isaac, and it was like, wow, this is exciting because this is part of the promise. And then God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham is really faithful, so he goes to sacrifice Isaac. But before he does, of course, God steps right in and tells him, no, 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 don't do that. Um, and it's, you know, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And, you know, that's kind of our story. And some of us might throw in there that along the way he kind of lost faith and he had another son, Ishmael, with Hagar. And some of us might throw in the the fact that, well, you know, the promise wasn't truly fulfilled until Jesus Christ came and that's how everyone was blessed through Abraham. You know, little details here and there, but for the most part, right, that's the way we understand Abraham. That's the way we tell the story. If you just had to tell an overview of his life. And see, I want to submit to you today that that's kind of, sort of, uh, the way we look at our own lives. Abraham got a call and a promise. Abraham went, then the promise was fulfilled. Woohoo right? We go right from the call <laughs> to the end, <laughs> and we stop along the way at the waypoints that sort of move us quickly to the end, but that's what we're concerned about. So it might be Michelle got a call, and then Michelle uh, went to a Christian college, and then Michelle met Pastor Peter, and then they got into a church, and she went, you know what I mean? You'd like the the important details that fit for the destination that we're trying to get to. Well, like I said, my whole—the thing that I want you to get today is that what's important in this story is the stuff in between. So that's what we're going to look at, the stuff in between. And hopefully at the end of this sermon, you'll see how Abraham's relationship with God and how Abraham is changed and transformed, how the relationship evolves, this process of life change that Abraham goes through. So let's go ahead and get into it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 12, and it will come up on the screen if you don't. So beginning with the first verse, it reads, "'The Lord had said to Abram, "'Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. "'I will make you into a great nation and bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing.'" I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all people on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old, 75, remember that, years old, when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had and um, had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for a land, the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Okay, so what we have here is the first time that God is coming and appearing to Abram. The first time he's calling him. And you see that, uh, you know, God comes, he calls, he has a promise and a blessing, right? And what does Abram do? He follows. And like I said, we tend to want to jump from the call to the blessing, call to the promise, but let's see you know, what's going on here. At this point, what do we know about Abram? Not a whole lot. We know he has a wife named Sarai. We know he has a nephew named Lot. Uh, we know he has some possessions. He has some servants. Uh, we know that he's 75 years old and we're gonna remember that he's 75 years old. We know that for some reason, he chooses to follow God. Now, we can assume some things about that, you know, about him based on that decision to follow God. I assume that he has some sort of belief system, right? I mean, I assume that because I, I imagine that if I believed in nothing and then something came to me and said, take your family and go, I might think I was insane, right? But Abram doesn't respond by going and talking to family and saying, I'm going crazy, he actually goes. So I'm, I'm assuming he has some sort of belief system. Um, but we don't know what belief system. We don't know what his faith is. What's also interesting is that God doesn't really give Abraham a whole lot of details. At this point of the story, if you had read nothing else, and if you didn't read anything else, you wouldn't know necessarily a whole lot about God. I mean, he doesn't come to Abram and say, Abram, I am the God who created the heavens and the earth. You know, go and follow me. He, d- he says, Abram, go. So, I mean, again, Abram could probably have deduced a little bit about God. I mean, think about the request. He doesn't come and say, you know, Abram, go or I'll smite you. He came with offering, you know, something that Abram probably wanted. He came with a promise, of blessing. But that's about all we know at this point. But for some reason, Abraham decides to follow. So what is very clear is that at this point, Abram is now starting a journey with God. He's been called, and he's going. So let's continue with verse 10. And it says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman, and Pharaoh's officials saw her. They praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maiden servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say this is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders to Abram, gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Okay, so there are a couple things that I want to point out about this passage. So we just got a call, right? Abram just got a call from this guy that he doesn't necessarily know anything about, and he decides to pick up everything and leave. But it's kind of clear that at this point, he doesn't necessarily believe that God is going to have his back. And in all fairness to Abram, why would he? He doesn't know anything about this guy. They're just starting to walk together. What could he possibly, why would he trust, right, that God is going to protect him or keep him? So he comes up with this plan to protect his life. And sure enough, just as he thinks, it goes down exactly the way he thinks. They think Sarai is beautiful. The, The Pharaoh takes her. He gets wealth and stuff because of her. All of this stuff, you know, it happens exactly as he says. But God does then intervene. So I want to speak specifically now to my ladies, specifically wives, actually. Think for a moment how Sarai feels at this very moment. We don't often talk about Sarai in the story, but I think it's important to see what's going on on this journey, and it kind of tells us what might be revealed, some some aspect of God that is being revealed, looking at Sarai. First, her husband of many years mind they were 75 when God called—comes to her one day and says, "'Honey, I heard from God.'" And we need to get up and we need to leave now. And we need to go someplace. Now, he didn't tell me where we're going, but he's going to show me. Let's go. And then you get to Egypt because you followed him. You have followed your man, right? You get to this place and your husband says to you to save his own life, to protect himself, he puts you in harm's way. (laughs) It's not that great, right? So now you are a married woman. And we imagine that she loves her husband. She at least trusts him enough to follow him, right? A married woman is now in Pharaoh's household having to be the wife of another man. And sometimes when we read these stories, it's easy to think that like, stuff is just kind of happening like that. But there's, we don't know how long this situation went on. The beginning of the chapter tells us that you know, they went and stayed in Egypt for a while. We don't know how far the relationship between Pharaoh and Sarai went. We don't know how much of a wife she had to be right? Can you imagine what that would have felt like? Can you imagine? See, so the scripture, the passage doesn't tell me this, but it's not difficult for me to imagine Sarai crying out to God. We don't hear that, but I don't think that that's a stretch, right? This probably wasn't a pleasant situation. And so I imagine that when God inflicted Pharaoh, the person um, who experienced blessing was Sarai, I mean, this worked out pretty good for Abram. He was given things and treated well for her sake. See, I think that when God stepped in and intervened, it was not just Abraham, but especially Sarai, who experienced God as someone who would protect, someone who would deliver. They learned something on this journey, for Sarai, her husband was unable to be a covering for her, but God was. So in the midst of the journey, God revealed himself as protector and deliverer for Sarai and maybe hey, as provider for Abram because, again, the situation, it worked out well for him. And I think both of them walked away from that experience knowing something about God that they didn't know before. So keeping on, we're journeying with Abram. The next place in the text that we're going to look at today where we find God coming to Abram is in chapter 15. And now in between this, some some things have happened. Um, Abram and his nephew Lot have parted ways, and Lot has gone in one direction. That got loud really quickly, and Abram has gone in another direction, um, and Lot has gotten himself captured by the eastern kings and Abram has now sort of gone into battle with these kings to get to rescue Lot and he's been successful. So then we find him in chapter 15 and beginning again at the first verse it says, after this the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is the Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. The word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so again, you know, this kind of sounds a little familiar. We see God coming to Abraham, similar to, you know, what happened in chapter 12. There's a call, and in this case, it's a call, you know, don't be afraid. And then there's a promise, and a similar promise, a promise of heirs, a promise of blessing. But there's something markedly different about this particular interaction, First of all, unlike the first time that God came to Abram, we see a very different response from Abram. We see a response. In chapter 12, Abram Abram doesn't really say anything. God comes, God says go, Abram goes, and that's really all you get. But here in chapter 15, Abram replies. Abram interacts with God. And what does he say? He calls God Lord. Now, it's easy to sort of uh, breeze past that part um, because, you know, God, Lord, is used all through the Bible, God, and it's easy to sort of take that language for granted. But think about it. This is the first time that Abram is speaking to God and what he says is Lord. What he calls him is Lord. He names God. He calls him master, ruler, ruler. See, implicit in this, t- in this term is sort of um, an idea that there's willing submission to a power greater than yourself. Abraham is acknowledging the might and the majesty of God. Again, you may be thinking, big deal, right? I mean, good, he got it right. He finally sees who God is. But I want to caution you. See, the point here isn't that God correct, that Abram correctly identified God. The point is what got Abram to a point where he could make that identification. See, in chapter 12, Abram didn't know God as Lord. Abram didn't necessarily know God as anything. We don't know what his relationship was, but here we're starting to see it's not just somebody who's like blind obedience. We're starting to see relationship, right? We're starting to see, to see some trust. Abraham is starting, or excuse me, Abram is starting to understand something about this God that he is following him. He just left Egypt and he saw God move on, on his behalf. He's just been in a battle and he's won. Things are happening that are revealing to him that you know what, this God, this God has authority over other kings. He's had a couple interactions with other kings and come out victorious. And this God who he is following is the reason. So he's starting to understand something about the God that he is serving. Now, if we didn't have the stuff in between, If we didn't know about Egypt, if we didn't know about some of the other things that come, if Abram had not experienced those things, would he know God as Lord? Would he be able to say, God, you're Lord in this passage? I don't think so. But we're going to continue on because I want to prove it to you. (laughs) I think the other thing that makes this interaction different um, before we move on is that God here, you know, you get this chapter 6 where Abram believes the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. God credits Abram's beliefs as righteousness. Now again, we're very familiar with that. It's easy to not think about it, but why not in chapter 12? Why wasn't, why wasn't Abram getting up and going credited to him as righteousness in chapter 12? We don't know what he believed. We don't know what he thought. We don't know why he went. We don't know what his motives are. But again, you're starting to see this evolution. You're starting to see this process process unfolding before your eyes. Something is happening between God and between Abram. And so now Abram believes God, and now that is credit to him as righteousness. There is a relationship that's moving past just obedience to maybe trust. So let's continue. Okay, so in chapter 16 chapter following immediately, right? We just did chapter 15. Now we're looking at chapter 16. And what do we find? We just see Abram and he believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. And now we're about 10 years past the first time he's called. And Abram and Sarai are hatching a brilliant scheme to sort of help God out along the way, right? They still haven't had any kids. They're still sort of trucking with the Lord. And Sarai comes to Abram and says, you know what? Maybe if you go ahead and, you know, you sleep with my, my, maid servant Hagar which was completely okay by the cultural standards of that time if you sleep with her you'll maybe have a child and this is how we'll have some kids maybe this is what you know God means and Abram says you know what that sounds like a plan let's do it and he does (laughs) and lo and behold Hagar becomes pregnant they have a child now if you continue you know if you've never read the story I encourage you to do that and we're not going to go into all of it here but that proves to not be the best situation um uh and you know, a lot of stuff goes. But but what's important here is you kinda of are starting to see first of all the pattern that's emerging. Um you get God coming to Abram initially, right? And it's just some, some very basic information. And then Abram does something utterly human, right? And then God comes again. You get a little bit more information. And then we go back and we find Abram doing something again utterly human, right? And these utterly human moments are important. And these are details that, like, maybe you pull out if you're going to preach on that specific passage. But we don't think about it all the time. But we're seeing, again, what, well, first of all, we know that Abram is far, 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 far from perfect, And even even after having two encounters with God, he's still far from perfect, and I love him for it. But this encounter, um, it also tells us again, like I say, they're both flawed, but they're still journeying on. And they're still sort of stumbling and tripping about and trying to get it right. All right, so we kind of looked briefly at that, but I want to go to chapter 17. And this encounter, this is the one that we all know, that's most familiar to us. And it's in this chapter that Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. And the Bible tells us that at this point, Abram is 86 years old. So we start at 75. We're now 86. There are no children to be spoken of yet, other than Ishmael, right? Who is not the child of the promise. So we find, you know, in chapter 17, he's 90 years old. 15 years have passed since the first encounter. And what's significant about this? Well, first of all, like I said, God changes their name. So what does this mean? In the Bible, names are very powerful. They have meaning. And names in the Old Testament tell us something about the status of a person. They signify a new relationship or a new status. They point to you that, you know, something is going on. It's not just like, you know, my name is Michelle. It's Michelle because my parents thought it was a nice name. It doesn't say much about me, right? But that's not the case here. And names are important for the story, so when we, when we read this initially, the story of Abram and, and Sarai's journey with God, it's easy to sort of view this passage, 17, where God comes to him and he makes a covenant with him and he changes his name. We sometimes see that as a pivotal moment. And we sometimes forget that it took 15 years before this name was changed. It took 15 years of walking and journeying before Abram became Abraham, before Sarai became Sarah. And what do those names point? They point to the, to the fact that these are going to be the father, the mother and father of many nations. Well, why not in verse 12? If this was God's plan for them all along, why not change their name then, right? If this is you know you're going to do it, then just... So what, what does it tell us that now is when the name has changed? Well, like I said, names tell us something about relationship and status. And I want to submit to you that what we're seeing here is that, again, just like and the second time that God comes to Abram, and this third time, the relationship has gone even deeper. Now, I'm imagining that there's some faith We go from some obedience, blind obedience. We start to get into a place where maybe Abram is kind of trusting that God might do what he said he's going to do or might have his back. And now we're getting into some faith because Abram believes this thing now. You are going to be the father of many nations. Your name can change. And look at the way that they interact. If you ever have time, go back and read this passage. The interaction is different. We find in this chapter that Abram makes a request of God see, Abram here, after God goes through and tells him, you know, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bless Isaac. He's going to be the child of the promise. Abram says, well, you know, what, what if this could happen for Ishmael? I'm sure he felt very bad about what he had done, and he knows he has this other child. And, A- and God responds to Abram. And God says, you know what? I've heard your request. And Ishmael will also be blessed, and he will have descendants. There's some interaction here, Right? And it seems like God is maybe entrusting Abraham with a little bit more. God is revealing a whole lot more. Again, go read it. God reveals to Abram a whole lot more details about what's gonna happen along this journey. The relationship is evolving. This could have been a really short story. In chapter 12, God could have called Abram and called Sarai, he could have changed their name, given them a child. And it would have been, you know, hey, there you go. The story, the promise, it's all good. But had he done that, would Abram know God as provider? Would Sarai have come to know God as protector and deliverer? Would they be able to say that we can call God Lord? I don't think so. See, this change in the name tells us that relationship has changed. These folk know each other. God, Abram, they know each other a little bit better. And this is evidenced even more in Genesis 18. Those of you guys who know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that um, in Genesis chapter 18, some visitors come and um, Abram welcomes them. And there's a whole lot of stuff that happens. And just before they're about to go, you know, they're heading out toward Abraham. And and in verse 16, it says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, and this is important, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said to Abram, let me tell you what I'm going to do. And he begins to share his plans. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is just, you know, it's bad down there, and I need to go and see what is going on. And verse 22 and 23 is where we're going to stop with this chapter because it says, you know, the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him. Now, if you know the story, you know that Abraham approaches God, and he begins to talk to God. They have this conversation, and Abraham starts to say, you know, like, God, are you, if, if there are 50 righteous people in the, in the city, are you going to destroy it? And God comes back, and it's like, no, Abraham, you know, I, I won't. If there are 50 righteous folk, I will not destroy the city. And Abraham comes again, well, you know, God, what if there are 40 righteous folk? And they, they go back and forth, and they have this conversation. And it gets all the way down to Abram saying, you know, well, God, what if there's just one righteous person in the city? And God says, you know what, Abraham, for the sake of one, I won't destroy it. They're having a conversation. God has said, I want to share something with Abraham. I'm not going to withhold information from Abraham. And Abraham has remained standing before the Lord, and they're talking, they're praying. Abram's learned to pray. <laughs> Abram has learned to talk to his father, to talk to his Lord. As they have been journeying, God is now able to entrust Abraham with more things, and Abraham has trust in God. So we get to chapter 22. This is the chapter we all know the sacrifice or the near sacrifice of Isaac. And see again. For a lot of us, when we think of this, we think of Abram and we go right from he was called to he had so much faith that when Isaac was, you know, when God said sacrifice Isaac, sacrifice the son, right, the son that you've been waiting for, the son that I promised you, go and sacrifice him. Abram doesn't question. Abram gets up and without pause goes. And he's just about to sacrifice him. And before he does, the Lord steps in and he stops. And we say Abraham was a man of faith. Wow. Wow. And we like to go again from call to Abraham was a man of faith. Wow. Hopefully you've seen there's a whole lot of stuff in between. How did he become this man of faith? He's seen God show up in those hard times. He's interacted with God. He's learned to pray. He's asked God for things, and he's seen God deliver. He's responded. He's been entrusted with things. He has experienced God sharing more and more of his own heart with him. See, in this Christian journey... That is the point. How would we experience God as perfect peace when we are in the midst of utter confusion and devastation if we never were in the midst of utter confusion, devastation, and pain, right? How would you experience God in that way? How would you know God as comfort if you were never in a position where you needed to be comforted, The very things that we are often trying to wish our way through, hope our way through, pray our way past, are the things that God is using to speak to us, to teach us, to transform us. How do you become faithful if you don't ever need to use faith? See, life change, it is not a destination. That you be changed, that you be transformed, it's gonna happen, right? Life is gonna change. You are going to change. The Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back in the twinkling of an eye, we're gonna all be changed. You're gonna be changed, so don't worry. Life change will happen. The point is how it happens. The point is who you become as it is happening. So in the beginning, I said it's kind of funny for us to say as a church that we value life change as a, as a, a core value, to say that, that that is who we are, that's going to orient us. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that as a church, we're going to be committed to each other on this journey. It means as a church, I don't expect you to be any other place than where you are today, right? And I can pray you through where you might be tomorrow. We come alongside of each other, we support each other, we embrace each other when things are, because the journey, and I'm sure we can all attest to, the journey is not always easy. There are hard, ugly, painful things along the journey, but even that, even the mess, God uses. And God uses us to minister to one another. So I hope and pray that people today are encouraged I can tell you one of the things I struggle with most It's always feeling like I'm supposed to be somewhere else doing something else. I should know more scripture. Oh, you should pray more. You didn't read no words. Always. There's always something that I should be doing better. I should be somewhere else. I should be. And learning the lesson that you are, I am exactly where you need to be on this day. Today, you are where you should be. Right today, this day is an important place in your journey. And today, if you're in pain, if it's a mundane day, if you're experiencing great joy, today God is speaking to you. Today God is revealing something about Himself to you. Today, right here, right now. So I pray that you all are encouraged. I'm about to cry. I don't even know what <laughs> to encourage myself. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> I pray that you are. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Um, I'm going to invite the worship team (laughs) to come back up. And I just want to, as they are coming, um, to just pray for us. Pray for us all, wherever we are on our journey. And I want to, as I'm praying, encourage you to do a couple things. First of all, wherever you are right now, ask God to just allow you to embrace this place. No matter how hard it is. Ask God to allow you to embrace this place and hear what he is saying and see what he is doing in your life in this time. And also, wherever you are on your journey right now, I pray that you would use this time to also open yourself to God bringing other people in your life to walk with you on this journey. Maybe there's something you need to share with somebody that you haven't been able to share. You might be like me, and you're the kind of person that's like, I'm doing it. I'm going to get it. I will push my way through. Maybe God is saying, you know what? Maybe there's some other people who can walk alongside this journey with you. That's why I have you in this place right now.
1: Our church is at a really critical period, and Michelle, I think, struck a chord with a lot of us. We began this journey with about 10-15 people who cared for each other loved each other were close knit and for the last couple of years we've struggled you guys with this tension of how do we continue to be a tight knit community that would embrace the journey my heart breaks when I walk in on Sundays and I don't know 90% of you that are here and I go God are we just becoming a church that's just going to grow large without going deep the only way for us to be a church that God has called us to be—that community—to somehow be a community that embraces the journey and recognizes, I can't do this alone. Can I just encourage us before we go today to do something? We all stand up together. We all stand up together. And we're not going to do this for long. We have a wonderfully large sanctuary, and can I just ask you guys to, right where you're at in your pews, maybe get together, turn around. Form groups of like four or five people. and let's hold hands and form just small circles right where we're at, okay? Right where we're at. Right where you're at, okay? Just form circles of people that are around you. A worship team, can I ask you guys to do this too, just for this prayer time, and then you guys come and lead us again. I want to make sure that every single person, literally, that is in this room right now is joined with somebody, Okay? make sure that your hands are held with somebody and I'm going to ask you guys to do something huge I'm either going to ask you to pray and say God will you help me be committed to pursuing life change in community in this church so you're not at that place of saying yep I'm there I wanted to jump in but will you be open to praying God will you bring me to that place where I can and then for second of us, the, the rest of us, our prayer is, God, I'm committed to this, and I just don't even know where to begin, God. The church just seems so big, so overwhelming, or God, I've got these issues, I, I, and I, wanna, I want to be in community to overcome them, God. I want to grow together as community. I want to be committed to people. I want people to be committed to me. God, show me how. Show me how, God. and spirit of God, lead me in the way. Tell me where to go. And within that circle, will you, A, pray this for yourself, and then, B, pray this for the person standing to your right and person standing to your left. This is perhaps one of the most important things we'll pray together as a corporate community. Because unless we are committed to doing this together, we can't do it at all. Spend a moment right now in your hearts praying for the person standing to your right, to your left, and praying for yourself. Show me how, God, I'm ready to jump in. God, I'm not ready to jump in yet. I'm scared, I'm afraid, and I quite don't even. God, give me the energy and the strength, God. Give me the ability to, God, get me to that place where I will want to want community, want to want accountability, want to want group of people to journey together, to do this together. Let's pray together right now. Spend a moment, pray right now together and lift up one another in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, God, we are a church. We are one, God. We are one community, God. Father, we are not isolated individuals, God. We are one, and we need you, Spirit of the living God. We need you, Spirit of the living God, to do this, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would cause us, Lord God, to speak and to know alone, so need you, can't do this alone, so need you, and need others so God, brothers and sisters, God, show me how, show me how, show me how, Lord Jesus show me how, show me how Lord Jesus, Lord, Lord God oh Spirit of the Living God oh Spirit of the Living God and can I just ask, within each of the groups right now, within each of the groups just have one person, one person volunteer to pray for that group One volunteer, pray for that group right now, okay? So within these groups, just one person pray for that group and lift up that group unto the Lord, okay? Right now, one person, one person do that. And the worship team, if you guys come and lead us. Hallelujah. Oh, Spirit of the living God. Hallelujah, Spirit of the living God. Praise is what I do. It's what I do. Hallelujah! Yes, God. Man, Michelle, come on up here. I know that this has been a, a, a a long journey for many of us and i just want to share um you thank you michelle for the blessing that you have been (laughs) she's uh you guys are getting to hear from people that started the church and you're getting to hear their hearts and uh i know that you're being blessed um look the journey that michelle shared with us is intentional it's hard and it's going to take a while I'm not going anywhere, and I'm going to be here for the long haul, Amen. and we're going to be here for the long haul. Look, a great way to connect will be this barbecue right after the church, so if you don't have any place to go, stick around, okay? It's right across the street. We'd love to get to know you better. Michelle, mm-hmm. thank you again. May the Lord go with you and go behind you, go beside you. As you go forth today, share the love of Christ that is in you. Be a witness today for him, for he has been a blessing to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have a great week, you guys, and we'll see you back here next Sunday.